All right, this is Darker Days Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by Pete. How's it going, Pete? Hey, it's who and Mike. I'm good. It has been way too long since you guys got me on the mic. Yeah, man, it's been a hot minute and really excited to have you here because we're going to be talking about Twilight 2000, uh, talking about version 1.0 up to 2013. So this is an episode that we've been uh, we've been kicking around for, geez, like almost a year now. And uh, it's going to be really great to uh, to talk about this classic game, which uh, I think we both have a lot of hot takes about. But Pete, before we get to that, let's uh, let's get a little game update for you because uh, we haven't talked in a while, and you've been uh, you've been doing some gaming even even through this pandemic, which has been uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, it's been it's been one of those things that because um because I'm I'm based out of Melbourne, uh, Australia, uh, and we locked down for a good four months. So you know, I uh, my particular situation. So I work in the hospital, so you know, I wasn't gonna. I work in the hospital and I live and I uh, recently split up from my wife. So I actually moved closer to the hospitals. So I found myself in a situation where not that we were able to hang out during lockdown, but uh, one of the rules we had was we, it was a 25 kilometer sort of movement limit. We couldn't go outside of that little bubble. Um, and all my friends and my family live 50 kilometers away. So it was like, and even then I didn't want to give anyone the possibility of, of, um, of potentially passing on, you know, COVID. So yeah, locked down, and all I really did was read V five books and kind of, you know, plan this epic, um, you know, but once we're it's no longer locked down, I'm, I'm going to run this, and it's going to be brilliant. And then it, it kept going on and on. Uh, we we slacked off lockdown, and then it surged back up again. So we went back into lockdown, and so eventually we just said, oh, screw it, let's let's try this Discord thing. Uh, so we installed, oh, which one, I think we're using Vlad or something, I can't remember what he was called. Uh, no, using Malkav, <laughs> um, um, to do, uh, the V5 dice. Oh, nice. And it worked, it worked surprisingly well on Discord, but we were all kind of just waiting for, and then obviously restrictions eased, um, we got the, we got the numbers down to basically zero, and then we got everybody back together. So we've, we've now played through the entirety of Chicago by night. Uh, we did the sacrifice, and and that concluded in the quote unquote canon canon way. So the Lazombra have joined the Camarilla. Okay, um, cool. I think we've we've now successfully killed off. Who have we killed off? We've now successfully killed off um, Sun Nubri. So the Malkavian primogen is dead. Uh, the book actually. Oh, spoilers. Sorry. Well, not so much spoilers. But, <laughs> um, yep. Spoilers for my game. Um, yeah, but sort of the, uh, the book uh, sort of said, because if he survives uh, the sacrifice, it says that, yeah, his, his very first thing that he does is, is he runs off and betrays everybody to the, yeah, to the second Inquisition. So he did that, and, yeah, he, and then he paid the ultimate price, uh, which was a hoot. Um, and yet yeah, now the boys, or sorry, my, my, uh, my players, we've now moved on to Rusted Jungle, which is a... Um, which is a chronicle, which is based out of uh, Street Run, uh, Street Run Red, which has the boys heading off to um, Gary, Indiana, to well, sort of find out what. Yeah, <laughs> the old classic city. To, yeah, that's cool. To, yeah, um, um, to solve a mystery on on who's been sort of sending car bombs to blow up the circuitry system in Chicago, and what became of Modius and Juggler, and so we had the first session of that one. That's pretty exciting. Uh, I remember the uh, the V twenty scenario uh, that they came out with 
for Gary where it was just it was literally just two vampires left and that was it in Gary Indiana. So I'd be excited to uh, hear about how the uh, the V5 version turns out. There's a, there's a few more now, but yeah, it is sort of like oh, it's it's I'm sort of treating it and I guess the book countries as you know those who've been if you've screwed up enough in Chicago that they exile you, but not enough that they take your head, you kind of end up in Gary. Mm. That's sort of where I'm going with it. But um, yeah, also, so I've um, the plan because I had a bunch of shenanigans going on. My um, my players are balls in China shops, uh, and they were just told, "Look, you need you need to get out of Chicago." And the other plan that they've decided was uh, that the, the um, they want to raid Black Site Twenty Four. So yeah, the uh, the military base that's housing who knows how many kindreds, you know, that have been kidnapped and are now being studied by the Second Inquisition. So that's what's going to happen after we wrap up Rusted Jungle. So and that'll be a hoot because I have so many cool ideas for what they're going to encounter. I can't talk about them because I think my players may end up listening to this. But yeah, it should be good. Um, I might try and stretch. I might try and stretch Rusted Jungle out a little bit just in the hope that um, the Second Inquisition book will at least get dropped on PDF by then. But uh, whatever, I'll I'll roll with the punches. And if uh. yeah, I, I mean, I think you can come up with some pretty cool and unique stuff for the uh, second Inquisition, and totally can. And if if it's in if it's my own game, I have sort of a uh, I have a lackluster opinion about canon. Like um, at one point we were sitting there talking about it because uh, one of my players really wanted to have uh, Hesha Ruhadze, who's the like the signature uh, ministry character. He's the, the, there's a whole thing about whether or not certain characters like being called a minister or whether they like being called uh, followers of Set. Um, but yeah, one of my players really, really wanted to have Hesher as his sire. And he's like, oh yeah, but it says in the book that, you know, Hesher's an eighth gen and we're all playing ninth and I went, yeah, and we're all playing 10th. And I went, yeah, I don't care, man. He's, he's, he's ninth. Doesn't matter. Nobody cares, dude. Let's, let's, you know, you know, um, um, whatever serves the game. We have the same thing happened with another character who we'd sort of decided in the background that he would be like an ex-anarch. And it made a lot of sense to have, um, Anita Wainwright as his sire who's, you know, sort of one of the big um, anarch characters in Chicago. And again, yeah, there was like a generation disparity. I'm like, oh, let's just, yeah, move yeah, on. Don't worry about just uh, rushing under the no, rug and keep going. It's never going to pop up. Yeah, and any, anyone, who's, anyone who has a massive problem with that isn't one of my players. Anyway, how about, how about you? Well, um, uh, what have you been doing gaming-wise? Oh, geez, not a whole lot lately. Uh, we're still playing the uh, Iron Kingdoms uh, RPG with Chris. So that's been fun right. to go through, and uh, that should be wrapping up soon. And I think when that's done, I am uh, going to be devoid of RPGs for a little bit. Uh, so I'll yeah. have to figure that out. Uh, we've been talking about doing in-person uh, gaming again here in the U.S. Because uh, in my region, there is there is very little coronavirus flying around, and most people are luckily vaccinated. So it, it might be okay to do. We have to, we have to talk about it, see if people are comfortable, and um, uh, figure out uh, if, it's, uh, if it's safe to do. So we'll... Uh, We'll figure that out soon. Uh, but moving on from there, uh, let's talk about a little bit of gaming news. All right, Pete. So not too much gaming news here. Uh, the one thing we have written down, which is uh, you know correlating to the show topic, is that uh, Twilight 2000 version four uh, is supposed to be out in September. Finally releasing. It was on uh, Kickstarter. Oh, geez, about a year ago. I did back it. Which is is funny because I'm 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 probably never gonna play it. We'll uh <laughs> we'll get into that when we talk about the main topic of this episode. But uh, I'm I'm very I'm just fascinated by it, and uh, it seems like with Free League being the publisher, it's gonna be really good. Did you back to to like the the all the things level? 
where you're getting like you, where you get, you know, oh, you, you're getting the metal tin and the funky die. I'm getting the metal tin because I'm a, uh, I'm stupid. I'm I'm an idiot. I should have just bought a PDF and that's it. But uh, no, I'm gonna get the physical copy with all the maps and everything, so I can just nerdily yeah. look at uh, maps of Poland and maps of Sweden. Um, yeah, one of my Kickstarters uh, actually recently. Well, it, it delivered. I don't think it's on sale just yet. Uh, I kickstarted the the All the Things edition for Vampire Masquerade Rivals. Oh, cool! cool. Um, oh my god, the guff! It was amazing. Like I got this massive box that had Vampire Masquerade. It was I almost just wanted to photograph the box and stick that on the on. Um, I wanted to stick that on the Ducker Days uh, Instagram, but then I realized I hacked it in half before that photo. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, actually, I think I didn't put that on there, though, because it's got, like, yeah, I've got amazing player maps. I've, I've you know, these sort of neoprene, um, like, uh, mouse pads with all this lovely um, Amy Wilkin art on it. Mm -hmm. I've got um, I've, and, uh, um, I've got little token bags with all the various different clans on them. Uh, yeah, so so all these great things showed up for me to play in-person card games, and then yeah, we we had another small lockdown. So, but yeah, I'm, I still haven't actually had a chance to play it yet. I'm yeah. really looking forward to diving in, though. Um, some of my friends have played it, and they say that yeah, it's it's surprisingly awesome. Yeah, that's great. I actually got the uh, the Vampire Masquerade Legacy, no, uh, Heritage board game uh, oh, right, right now during during our semi lockdown, whatever whatever we just had for. A year or whatever uh so i haven't been able to play that uh but i was actually meaning to do an unboxing like i, I started to open everything and then i was like wait i should do an unboxing at some point but then i realized like if i'm gonna do the unboxing i should probably like learn the rules a little bit so i could talk about it while i'm unboxing rather than being one of those people that like is just like oh here's the contents of the box i don't know how to play this game but uh you know here's, here's some cards or something um so that's been kind of on my uh, to-do list for the last oh jesus six months or something did you get the did you get the funky coins i did get the funky coins uh, i'm not sure what you're supposed to use them for but they look cool me neither see this is the thing that i've discovered which is like half the half of these games come with stuff that i kind of want for v5 mm. because i'm actually here yeah, because i'm using i i am a massive believer in using tokens and in using um uh, so using any kind of physical media for uh you know because I, I don't know I, I like keeping a clean sheet but i'd rather you know like seeing like I'd rather hand oh what I can do I'd rather hand players over points or or some kind of you know um, blood point or something so you know um um to sort of have them lined up in front of them particularly for a hunger level and oh, yeah. I hand the and, and I hand the player coins to represent um, spent willpower and uh, damage and I find that works really really well so but I was I was I just I was I had a conversation with um because uh, campaign coins are actually a local company. I had a conversation with one of the owners, and I was like, "Hey, you know, um, you know, vampire?" And he's like, "Yeah, I had a I had a thing somewhere talking about the potential for licensing." And I'm like, "Please get a license from them so you can produce, you know, official like uh said uh, say some kind of official um yeah official uh coins representing hunger dice or oh, sorry representing hunger levels would be really cool." Mm -hmm. Also, technically speaking, because, you know, the rouse check is a pass-fail, you could flip a coin. That might be kind of cool. Yeah. Hey, that's a good idea. That's, uh, that's pretty fun. I like it. Yeah. The only one that doesn't work would be uh, uh, the Lazombra. Um, I suppose, you know, um, the Lazombra. Uh, the Lazombra. Not the Lazombra. The Oblivion rouse check, because that one has, a, has another effect that comes in if you, if you get a skull, but eh, whatever. That's fine. You can, uh, you can make a roll uh, with just one of the regular dice for that, and that should be okay. 
so with drive through rpg they actually have a price increase uh coming up on uh july 1st so any of the premium uh print-on-demand copies are going to be more expensive uh about 30 to 40 percent it sounds like uh from here on out but the standard copies are still going to be the uh uh the same price i think just just has to do with the um uh, the paper quality and that sort of thing. So just want to give people a, a heads up about that in case you're on drive through RPG, you're looking around, you notice like, hey, these prices just went sky high. So there's just a little uh, little service announcement about that. Yeah, I'm 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 I was really happy when Onyx Path announced. I know that there was there was one more uh, like small supplement that they produced um, uh, attached to Cult of the Blood Gods, uh, which was Trails of Ash and Bone. Um, that only came out recently, and I think they fast tracked getting the getting the POD ready to beat um, um, to just sort of scrape in right. and uh, beat that price hike. I'm going to be purchasing that literally tomorrow when I get paid. All right, awesome, awesome. You're you're getting right in before the uh, before the gate closes, so that's definitely awesome. I mean, shipping to Australia is a factor, but it's I'm just because I can sort of I can I can click on it because if if it goes up by that much. Yeah, wow. So, yeah, uh, print. Oh, jeez. Actually, have I missed it? Because pre- previous, maybe a larger book, but yeah, so that's 45. So premium color is $44. So that'll that'll put it up to around the, with shipping in and then with um with changing currencies over for the Australian <laughs> peso, um, that will bring it, that'll, that'll bring it up to somewhere like 70 or $80. So I, I, I think, you know, once the pricing um, increase comes in, I think that is likely to push it up to well over the hundred dollar mark. So yeah, yeah. It says the uh, the sale is going on for another one day, twenty uh, two hours, thirty nine minutes. So that is uh, that's the time you got, sir. I'm yeah. Good thing PayPal can take things into minuses. So I just end. Yeah, yeah. Should be good. All right, awesome. So that's all I got for uh, gaming news. And while we move on to our uh, our big major topic here of Twilight 2000. So, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about Twilight 2000, uh, which is a game about World War III. So I just want to give people a little content warning. If that's not something you want to hear about, I mean, we're not going to be, like, going too in-depth about the trauma of, of this potential war, but... It might come up, so just want to give people a heads up about that. If that's not really something you want to uh, uh, think about uh, or listen to right now, uh, you can just move on to the next episode and then come back to this when you're in a, uh, a better headspace. So technically speaking, um, this is the, the central conceit of this game is that, yes, it's, it's set post-World War III, mm-hmm. but it's this idea that it is a quote-unquote soft apocalypse, which is the idea that, yes, you know, so, so the conflict has, hurt, um, um, has happened... And some nuclear weapons have been deployed, but it hasn't kind of gone all out, you know, because in because that's it because that scenario is just yeah, well, welcome to Giga Death, welcome to you know the end of well, what will probably be the end of mammalian life on Earth. But start talking about this one. We probably have to talk about, I guess, the era which it was first conceived in. Right. And so in the mid in the early to mid eighties, sort of with you know sort of tension sort of with with the Cold War which at certain junctures was almost about to turn hot. Uh, We might chuck it in the show notes, but there is a fascinating documentary called uh, um, Able Archer 83, Eve of Destruction, where, and a lot of people know about this one, where we came within, to use an Australian phrase, a bee's dick 
away from all out nuclear war. Um, and so in the early 90s, really, but kind of war gaming, what the conflict between the USSR and the US might look like, and it sort of became this, this interesting little military fiction subgenre. Mm. Uh, the big book at the time was this book called, what is it, um, The Third World War by a guy called uh, Sir General John Hackett, who was a, he was a former, he was actually Australian born, but I think he was a former uh, British military general. Um, and he kind of lays this book out in like a mockumentary style. Um, it's a style, you know, so it sort of, you know, moves from different viewpoints, uh, showing you sort of how the conflict um, opens up. Um, it's actually a style that very much influenced uh, Max Brooks when he came and wrote the book World War Z, which was always one of my absolute favorite mm -hmm. books of the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, they also have sort of, you know, I mean, that in that sort of milieu, you also have uh, Red Storm Rising by Tom Clancy, which is one of his very few books of that era. I think one of his very few books at all that don't sort of um, uh, uh, occur within sort of the Jack Ryan uh, verse. And uh, you have another one, Team Yankee which uh, basically used um, Hackett's or war scenario, but it's entirely the, um, the perspective of, uh, some of, of an American tank commander um, in, uh, you, know, you know, fighting things out in, I think at that point, that is uh, in West Germany. Uh, and yeah, Team Yankee actually has an interesting little, little link up with sort of where, with um, gaming itself. Uh, it had a board game back in the day, but um, uh, might be aware of the game Flames of War, I am, yeah. I've seen they have the Team Yankee uh, version out. Yeah, because um, because so uh, for those who don't know, so Flames of War was actually a um, Flames of War. It, you know, the original version is a World War Two um, tabletop miniature game, and that's much a problem. But what happened with uh, t with um, uh, Flames of War was they kind of did it all in that they had you know sort of gaming pieces and gaming miniatures for pretty much every single. You know, every single German unit, every single, you know, they, every single American unit, you know, they, they basically kind of hit the ceiling when it came to what they can, you know, portray in their game. Uh, and so to, to give a bit of a spin, they came up with Flames of War Team Yankee, which, yeah, is this idea of, well, what if the Cold War goes hot? So that allowed them to bring in sort of circa 1990, you know, US um, Soviet forces, uh, um, uh, the same uh, circa 1990 American forces, and to bring in things like um, helicopters and whatnot, and that kind of gave them uh, a new spin on the game. So, so within this, you then get sort of um, Twilight 2000, which again, it, it takes this sort of central conceit that, you know, you have, you have um, things kicking off, um, the, the two big forces take on each other, uh, conventionally, and some nukes get thrown around, but it never becomes sort of all-out war. Yeah, because I mean, if it becomes you know mutually assured destruction, it's just it's just game yeah. over. You know, no one's left alive; everything's done. No, no. Yeah, as I said, it's 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 the whole sort of thing of, and yeah, it's the very very depressing thought of some people will probably survive on you know deep. You know, it's it's the whole idea of some people may well survive in on you know in small islands or in deep bunkers. Yep. And yeah, but the the planetary ecology is just destroyed, and yeah, it's you have the whole thing of yeah the survivors you know the lucky ones go in the blast and the survivors envying the dead, which doesn't I guess make for a really hilarious or fun evening of role playing. I don't know. <laughs> what do you reckon? Uh, I mean, I don't know if anyone's tried to really. There there are games that kind of deal with that a little bit. Like there's um. There's the Morrow Project, which is a which is a post-apocalyptic game after pretty much total annihilation. Um, in that in that game, you play as um, it's actually very similar to Fallout Four, 
you play as a oh, teams wow. of people that were put into a bunker and um were were cryogenically frozen and you're a bunch of scientists soldiers uh that kind of stuff and you awaken i think like 100 years later and basically have to go through the ruins to try to rebuild society and there's a there's a pretty cool meta plot to the entire game so that kind of sci those sci-fi elements can make it fun i mean you know there's like gamma world for example classic tsr game um and that's when you, that's that's when you so you start bringing in the super music. Yeah, you got the, you got the, you know, the, the essentially magic of that setting, you know, the psychic powers and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, that brings in like fantasy sci-fi elements and the like. So when you when you add in those things, yeah, you can make some fun, uh, fun role playing. But if you just want to play uh, a highly realistic version of mutually assured destruction, uh, I mean, that's that's going to be brutal. Um, I think I think it exists in video game form. You can go give Deathcon a try. I've had I've had a couple of games of Defcon and, and you think it's going well and then you're like yeah uh, mistakes were made mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's tough <laughs> yeah mm. yeah so so kind of kind of following on to what you just mentioned Pete um this is this is a different time as as you mentioned and there's a lot of uh this this came out in 1984 the same year as Red Dawn which was a uh, a highly yep. uh uh. <laughs> I don't know what you want to call it, jingoistic, neoconservative film. It really kind of glorified uh, war and resistance and, you know, you know the, uh, uh, the free peoples fighting against communism, that sort of thing. That's the way you get some, we can, we can mm -hmm. sort of jump sideways for a little bit. We are going to talk about Twilight 2000. Yeah, right. But that's where you get some interesting, you know, that, that, that's, there are some interesting war films of the period, particularly because I, I, I may need to have a quick Google while we talk, but because um, you have Red Dawn, but before that, I believe you had The Day After. Which was this sort of? I, I believe it's it's either a two. I don't think it's a two-parter. I think it's a single sort of. It's a TV movie, which was a which was at the time a, a quote unquote realistic depiction on what the civilians, you know, on what the civilian experience of all that nuclear war was. Incredibly depressing. Um, and then you have the British version, which is a film called Threads, which for my money is my numero uno most disturbing horror film I've ever seen. You know, take take your Exorcist, take your Shining, take anything, take take your Blair Witch Project. This film, I watched it as a as a as a teenager and it it left a fold in my brain. I have spent yeah. over 20 years trying to iron out. This film will just it just sears itself. Yeah, Pete, you you recommended it, that film to me and uh man, I uh Oof. We watched it, did you? Oof, oh it's God. brutal. It is absolutely brutal. And takes yeah. place in uh, Sheffield, UK, where uh, Chris lives. Yeah, enjoy that, Chris. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. You can watch it and you'll be like, shit, Chris. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so uh, let's not have a nuclear war ever. Um, yeah, really, that, 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 that film, I think, is also... I've also seen The Day After. Um, and... Yeah, which is, which is the, the, the really watered down... Yeah, oh, yeah. exactly. <laughs> It's... that one feels watered down threads is intense and threads gives you like there's these these little um like title cards that'll pop up every once in a while in between scenes and they'll just give you facts just really depressing yep. facts about what is occurring in the planet or to the united kingdom yeah. um absolutely yeah totally brutal totally brutal so yeah. so i think it has, it has this sorry mm -hmm. just a quick aside it has this narrator after after the bombs have dropped which is in yeah I've, I've obviously I've I've been through all of the stuff out there that's about threads, um and yeah it's it's the narrator is not so much like or well, as they call him the voice of fact, 
which and he just sort of pops up and says, you know, if what survived of the government has any food stores, they won't be distributed for at least two weeks. This is to allow anyone who's alive but has been irrevocably, you know, um, radi um, radiation poisoned to die because there's no point feeding them. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, oh my god, yeah, absolutely brutal, absolutely brutal. So let's let's kind of move this back to twilight 2000 and uh i, I kind of want to ask you pete you know first up have you ever played twilight 2000 and if so or if not how do you feel about playing it um so at this stage i haven't so i've 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 had a good look over i've 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 read the core book and i've, and I've read a couple of um supplements here and there particularly the american book um i really really like it i'm intrigued by the setup because well we should probably we'll swing that back around to a second yeah. Um, uh, I'm intrigued by the setup, but oh boy, is this a 1980s system? So crunchy. It's, it's it's oh my god, it 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 crunches like a bowl of cereal without any milk on it, and it's really really granular. So I mean, you know, back in the day, because because I remember coming across it, uh, uh, one of my good buddies, Jim, he's a he was a Twilight 2000 nut. He was like, oh look at this game, I really want to play it. But by that point, it was already, you know, because I, I sort of got into gaming around the mid-90s. At that point, I think the game was already defunct. And, yeah, Cold War was a thing of the past. It looked like, hey, what happened? So it kind of was falling away. And, and by that point, you know, we were getting into, you know, I think I think obviously at that point I was a teenager and this thing called Vampire had shown up. So, oh, yeah. I was like, oh, well, that was a, that, that's a fun read. And also, yeah, because I, I remember hearing someone that at, at, at the time, yeah, I think, in terms of you know who was getting into it, I think things like uh, cyberpunk. I was I was having a read over uh, what is it, designers and dragons. I was saying that there are things like cyberpunk and uh, Star Wars had sort of popped up, mm. and they were. And I think I think the the belief at the time was that uh, cyberpunk and Star Wars were starting to just sort of eat at its audience a little bit because it, it 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 sold really really well. It sold surprisingly well for a game at the time. I think um because uh, you forwarded this to me where in in one of the recent in one of the reprints of the book they actually uh, uh published the the sales numbers which was amazing yeah and so i think i think i think overall the core sold something like a hundred thousand units yeah for version one which i mean we don't know exactly how many copies sell of other rpgs it's it, most companies don't share that information but a hundred thousand seems pretty good you know it was the 1980s you know rpgs were more popular or less popular i'm not really sure uh, back at that time, but 100k seems like a, a pretty good amount. That's going to that's a lot of people at a lot of gaming stores buying a copy. Yeah, apparently this game was it's it's was apparently this this first beginning bridge between sort of uh, military uh, war gamers and role players, mm. which I, I, I really does make a lot of sense. You know, there's the the people who sit there pushing around um, the various different tiles of advanced squad leader, which was one I'd always seen played and was always thoroughly intimidated by and was told that yeah man <laughs> this is this is all crunch you will unless you're hardcore don't even don't even think yeah it's uh it's definitely very a very complex game uh so i have not personally played twilight 2000 but uh i actually did roll up a character one afternoon and uh the, the rules wow. the character creation rules they're not very long they're only like geez like 20 pages or something but it took me three hours to do and uh, my character sheet, I had to, there's no character sheets that you can print off. I had to write one by hand, and it took me three hours to do. So it was, uh, it was surprisingly complex and very dense. The, the character creation rules ended up being very dense, as I noticed. So that was pretty interesting. Um, so, but 
I think kind of what I want to share is that yeah, this this is very complex, very very granular, uh, and I'm not sure if I would ever play it, but I have read version one and parts of version two in, in 2013. Clearly, I backed the Kickstarter for the new version, and I find it very very interesting and actually a really cool game to read if you're a game designer because I think there's some really insightful things in there which we'll we'll get on to after we discuss the setting um which i think is the first thing we should do because there's there's three different versions that are out right now and each of them has a different setting and i think this is kind of uh, interesting and important um just from a historical standpoint to kind of discuss so uh for the setting let's talk about version 1.0 this is the original version that came out this is the one that sold a hundred thousand copies uh, and was uh, was really popular. So, uh, Twilight 2000, might call it T2K, as I'm going through, is kind of a, uh, with its version one, it's a cautionary tale of the future. You know, it was uh, published in 1984, but it postulated how World War III might begin uh, between the, uh, the NATO forces and Warsaw Pact forces uh, in Eastern Europe. And... Uh, it's a story in crisis that began in 1995. So, you know, it projects out 11 years after the publication in the future. And uh, China and uh, the USSR declare war on each other for some reason. The book really doesn't spend much time justifying that. They just say it occurs. So there's a war in, uh, you know, the, the quote, Far East, unquote. Um, and it's a bloody war. The USSR uh, repeatedly requests troops from other Warsaw Pact countries. And a lot of these soldiers, they just, they die horribly out there. <clears throat> so meanwhile, in uh, Central Europe, there are secret talks that begin between East German and West German generals. And because uh, they, the, uh, the, you know, communism's not doing great at this time. The planned economy is really breaking down. Uh, consumer goods are very hard to find, especially because at this point, the, uh, the main you know, Soviet Union is switching more from a uh, civilian economy to a war economy. So there's there's fewer you know consumer goods and and you know living standards really decrease. So in East Germany, they want a better lifestyle. They want uh, uh, to have a better life. And these generals pretty much agree to unify the German state under a military junta. So the start of World War Three. These people assumed in 1984 would be the unification of Germany, which I think is point number one, very interesting. So on October 7th, 1996, the West German army was allowed to cross the border uh, while East German troops basically just sit in their, in their bunks. They don't do anything. They just allow them to cross the border. And uh, the only resistance that really takes place is from uh, confused Soviet soldiers stationed in the newly reunited country. So <clears throat> that's another interesting point. It's kind of a, uh, instead of like the civilian unification that uh, we know actually occurred in real life with the, uh, you know, tearing down the Berlin Wall, et cetera, it's, it's sort of a military invasion, but it's kind of allowed by East Germany. These Soviet soldiers start to fight back and also some other uh, Warsaw Pact uh, people that are in Germany also fight back. So there's like some Polish and uh, Czechoslovakian uh, uh, units which are there and they also fight back because they kind of realize pretty quickly that there is a unification going on and you know those two eastern bloc countries in particular don't want a unified country of, of germany again for you know historical reasons um so pretty much uh fighting occurs uh there's shooting that goes on 
and the uh, the West German advance is stalled. Uh, the East and West German governments are deposed by those uh, those military generals, and the East German army is finally mobilized, and a new war in Central Europe begins. So this United Germany uh, requests intervention from NATO, which uh, West Germany, we know, is, has been a part of for many, many years. Uh, and this defensive alliance is split on what to do, right? Because this was a uh, this was technically an invasion by West Germany uh, from the point of view of, of certain countries, uh, particularly France. So the U.S. and U.K. actually have their forces that are stationed in West Germany advance into East Germany, while France, Belgium, Italy, and Greece protest and do not enter the war. Some stuff happens, and in 1997, Romania and Yugoslavia uh, join NATO because the uh, Romania refuses basically to join the uh, the war and is invaded for some reason um, by uh, the uh, the uh, Warsaw Pact. And Yugoslavia decides to come to their aid. They both end up joining NATO. Uh, Greece gets involved in a war with uh, Turkey over Cyprus, um, just due to uh, kind of like nationalism and jingoism over there. And then the one that really strikes me as weird uh, is that Italy invades Austria uh, and basically becomes a co-belligerent of the Warsaw Pact. So I've always kind of scratched my head about that little point right there, because why, why are they getting involved? It seems like the writers wanted to get pretty much every country involved, except for Belgium and France, just to have them all shooting at each other. In some instances, because I did a little bit of an ESO, so you know that a lot of the original designers were, uh, you know, sort of obvious were, I mean, a lot of the original were sort of, uh, I guess, what would you call it? Um, I suppose they were uh, sort of Soviet slash US war wonks. So, yes. you know, you can, you can see sort of where, you can see where their focus is. And then they kind of throw out little details like, oh yeah, in India and Pakistan started nuclear war. Yep. And you're like, and how did that come about? But you, you do kind of have to have a little bit of, you know, okay, this is, exp you know, you have an end goal, you know, which is, you know, soldiers running around a, a, a post-war Europe, we have to get there somehow. So. Right, right. And I think, I was trying to think about it, maybe the Italian government in the 1980s was uh, controlled by the socialists, I believe, and I'm wondering if that's kind of the justification they went with. They're like, oh, maybe because they're socialists, they won't want to help out NATO, and then maybe they'll try to attack this other country, Austria, for territorial gains. That's usually the motivation, it seems like, in a lot of these wars that are declared is just, like, territorial gains. That's what they want, um, which, you know, is very jingoistic, but yeah, it, it's not always the best justification. Okay. I mean, do you agree with that, or do you, do you disagree, Pete? I guess so, mate. In all, in all honesty, my knowledge of, you know, sort of Soviet-influenced... Okay, was it was the Italians attacking them, so... Yeah. Yeah, uh, my knowledge of the era is incredibly limited. It's, you know, it's, you know like... You know, it, you know, like like intra-European relations at the time. Yeah, I got no clue, mate. So I'll be like, oh yeah, okay. I'll just sort of shrug at that one and go, all right. <laughs> yeah, because anyway, people would have you know have and will spend forever debating the accuracy and inaccuracy of you know any of these kind of old war timelines. You know, if you can chase the rabbit hole, go and find the Reddit for this stuff, and you will just find verbal combat of these people going back and forth and back and forth and you know coming up with and yeah because this this you know any kind of alt history particularly stuff that doesn't go too crazy that doesn't involve you know space lizards and whatnot hello harry turtle dove um any of that sort of stuff yeah you'll find people going back and forth you know back and forth coming up with 
oh, you know, if if you have different diversion points, like let's say, you know, if Hillary Clinton had become president, this war would have happened and this war would have happened because this person would have, you know, had influence and da 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 da. And you're like, yeah, okay, sure. It's 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 all fun suppositions, but you ultimately have kind of no way of ever really knowing. Right. So, you need to make you need to make assumptions just to get yeah, things yeah. moving with this timeline and that's that's what the writers had to do in some ways so uh, su- suffice it to say everyone's fighting everyone and um <clears throat> the war in europe gets increasingly desperate as nato forces take over most of poland and they actually step onto soil of uh of the ussr and with the uh, chinese infantry making gains in the east the soviet leadership authorizes the use of nuclear weapons um which is really part of their doctrine right and and is part of russia's doctrine to this day if if they are at war and they start to lose it is in their doctrine that they will use nukes um in this case uh in europe the the use is very tactical and limited because they're they're trying not to destroy at this point too many factories and uh other things that could be useful to the war effort and uh however on the the undeveloped chinese frontier the nuclear strikes are horrifying and destructive uh, totally destructive and are basically just targeting infantry divisions out in the open and uh just just killing people in swaths so next winter is uh, incredibly cold and uh destruction of some infrastructure causes widespread food shortages and there's refugee crises uh not only on the u.s southern border but also on the uh, the french and belgian east border as uh, people from Germany and other places are are trying to get into those countries which are not at war. Uh, destruction of ports and refineries mean that soldiers need to retool their vehicles to run off uh, distilled alcohol rather than on increasingly rare gasoline. And aircraft pretty much become a, uh, a memory as jet fuel is so rare. Um, and, you know, eventually there's a, a Soviet counteroffensive which pushes NATO forces back into central Poland. Uh, fresh recruits are pretty rare, and soldiers are uh, are stuck far from home as they they really start to become farmers more than fighters, right? Because they actually need to they need to farm in these areas to get the uh, organic material or or wheat to uh, you know make that alcohol to do that distillation. Uh, news is hard to come by as uh, television, radio, and computers were mostly knocked out by uh, EMP pulses from uh, uh, high altitude nuclear bursts. But soldiers have begun to hear rumors of a, a new U.S. president and a continuation of martial law against his wishes. Uh, by spring 2000, the remaining U.S. Army has collected enough ethanol to fuel tanks and jeeps for a new offensive, uh, one which is so disastrous that the remaining NATO forces crumble, and your unit's last message from their commander simply states, Good luck. You're on your own. And that's the setting of Twilight 2000 version one. So pretty, pretty brutal. And um, we'll, we'll get into the gameplay yeah. and other kind of mechanics later. But uh, overall, I mean, uh, Pete, how, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about the overall thing with like, you know, unified Germany triggering the war, et cetera? If, if, if that's all stuff that, that if you say, well, that's not real, you know, if you say, well, that's not realistic, that's not how it would have gone down. Um, well, that's easy for us to say with the benefit of this all, you know, this book game is nearly 30 years old. It is, yeah, this book is, is over 30 years old now. Um, and whether or not any of that's realistic or that was likely to have happened, again, I'm not really a scholar in that or haven't really done a lot of, um, haven't really done a lot of research into it. Um, but the, the basic sort of setup here, you know, so that's, again, you know, I, I kind of feel like we want a setup where you have military, you know, where realistic military shenanigans or realistic, you know, you have players running around 
a you know a, a shattered Europe, it gets you there. Yep. You know what I mean? This is it's a it's a good enough setup that it gets you there. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm actually pretty happy with that. That that sounds like a really interesting setup for the beginning of this game. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think it's um kind of the the main setting for the initial game is in Poland, and this really kind of gets you an interesting situation where you know uh the battle lines have moved back and forth you have you have these kind of you know u.s forces and and english or sorry uh british forces um german forces all kind of there in little pockets trying to survive you've also got you know breakaway soviet units that have kind of just kind of they've gone rogue maybe they kind of become warlords here in the area and set their own little fiefdoms um and you also have some forces which are still loyal to you know the uh, the Politburo uh, in in uh, in Moscow, so it, it kind of sets up this really interesting dynamic that you have there. With the subsequent editions that came out, I also want to highlight them kind of briefly. Um, I feel like version one is the best, but version two is interesting, and and the 2013 versions just bonkers. We'll we'll fun talking about that one. Uh, so I just want to cover those real quick. Um. So version version 2.2's uh, setting, uh, which came out in 1993, is in this case an alternate history game, uh, which assumes a divergence in the past. So you know they've they've been publishing this game for nine years at this point, and in 1993, the Soviet Union's gone; it's collapsed. So the uh, game designers' workshop has to go like, oh geez, we need to. We're still making some money off of this game. We got to republish it, but the old background doesn't make sense. You know, Germany unified without triggering a war, and you know, USSR is gone. So, how did things change? And didn't think that Chernobyl, which was yeah, which a lot of people have said that was even I think uh, Yeltsin himself said not Yeltsin Gorbachev mm-hmm. said that yeah, you know the the Chernobyl disaster was was what really took out the Soviet Union, which was yeah, which was something yeah, certainly these guys didn't think. Well, no one really you know predicted ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So yeah. this this game kind of picks a uh, 1989 divergence point. So the Warsaw Pact crumbles, uh, Yugoslavia implodes. This is all stuff that happened. Uh, and in yep. 1991, and this is a real world event, there was a, a coup by USSR hardliners, some generals, uh, KGB. And this results in the ahistorical death of Boris Yeltsin and the uh, imprisonment of uh, President uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. And that's all stuff that didn't happen. In real in the real world, you know, the coup failed because of like, you know, because uh... I believe it was I believe it was the whole thing of of um, the hardliners came in and they told sort of members of the special forces to to go and arrest, you know, go and arrest Mikhail Gorbachev. And apparently they all of them just, you know, to a man disregarded the order. And yeah, that's it's an interesting pinch point because if they hadn't, things may have gone, you know, another way. It's one of those sort of interesting little boil down moments where you know what i mean where where you know world history or you know where where world history could have gone a different way if certain people hadn't made certain decisions when they did you know like 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 um, um you know who uh gustavo princip is mate oh yeah or was mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah if if he hadn't have gone out and had that cigarette yeah he, was, he walked he out of the sandwich shop right and <laughs> uh archduke Franz ferdinand was right there yeah, he was. Yeah, just nailed him. So, yeah. and if he hadn't done it at that point, yeah, the, the argument was that this this young, I think he was something like, I think he was nineteen at the time, yeah, or he was he's, maybe he's a little bit older. The other, he's very young. Yeah, the, the, this this guy this guy was the architect of the twentieth century. Pretty much. So. The other funny thing about that is the uh, 
uh, the Grand Prince's uh, or Archduke's uh, uh, driver could not put the car in reverse without stalling, yep. <laughs> and that's why they were yep. stuck right there. It's so yeah, wild. It's, a, it's a fascinating again. Yeah. So so what we're talking about is, was yeah the execution of uh, Archduke Ferdinand, which led which led to the breakout of World War One. There is an amazing episode of Hardcore History by uh, with Dan Harland. That yeah, oh, yeah. If, if yeah, but if you're interested in look that one up, it's absolutely fantastic. But yeah, moving on. Right, right. So basically this coup occurs and several European republics uh, of the USSR uh, attempt to leave the Soviet Union, but are suppressed. Um, and then in 1991 to 1994, there's a pro-democracy movements uh, that spring up all over the place. Uh, but then they just kind of simmer. They don't, they're not as successful as they were in uh, our real world history. You know, obviously the uh, Berlin Wall did fall in this uh, scenario. So the combined German economy does... Uh, it's, it, it tries to integrate, but really struggles, um, you know, bringing together the, uh, the Western capitalism and the uh, Eastern planned economy. In 1995, Chinese ultranationalists demand border concessions from the USSR kind of rump state that exists. Uh, and that's, that's kind of denied, and it leads to open warfare between China and uh, the USSR. And... Um, once this war occurs, that allows Belarus and Ukraine to break away from the USSR. So they've, they've lost those two kind of major uh, European republics uh, or constituents of the USSR. Uh, in 1996, the uh, rapidly changing strategic situation uh, kind of leads to having Poland uh, free, but, you know, pins between this uncertain unified Germany and apparently an aggressive Belarus. Um, which leads to the creation of a new Warsaw Pact between uh, Poland and the uh, USSR rump state. And the uh, Belarusian government is quickly toppled, and the two countries partition uh, Belarusia between, uh, or sorry, Belarus, between Poland and the USSR. Despite the new Polish-Soviet defensive pact, Germany invades Poland, uh, assuming that the USSR would be too busy with their own war uh, in China. But of course, Germany was wrong. The United States decides to intervene, um, but there is a schism within NATO. Uh, most of the member states mobilize troops, while France, Belgium, Greece, and Italy withdraw from the alliance. Uh, from there, basically everyone starts shooting at each other, and, except for Belgium and France. And this leads to nukes and a stalemate situation, just like Twilight 2000 version 1. So, it's a bit jankier to get to the same same total war situation as version one pete but uh i i find it kind of interesting because you know originally i didn't like it but then i started to think about it more and it's really reminiscent of the uh how the the russian empire fell apart after slash during the first world war and all the little border conflicts that took place um in between the uh the successor states right so you had you know poland fighting lithuania fighting the soviet union fighting um, Czechoslovakia and all this other stuff. Uh, so I think it's kind of interesting in that regard. Uh, except in this case, there's nukes. I, I can sort of because I, I think they talked about how they said, "Look, obviously, this is this has become really anachronistic, right. and we need to we need to make our split point somewhere." So I th I think they came up with a decent enough. I will say, look, look, it, it, it's decent, it's decent enough. And yeah, I, I try not to prod it or make fun of it too much because it would never happen. You know, this this could never have been this and this. Because yeah, as I said you, you have an end goal again, which is we need to set up for our for our game. Um, 
And yeah, look, I, th- I think I think the 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 version two fixes work quite well, mm-hmm. as opposed to Twilight twenty thirteen, <laughs> which will which will now about to. Talk oh my about. gosh! Yeah, if you want to make fun of something, this is where it starts. So yeah, ninety three Game Studio got the license to Twilight two thousand, and they decided to publish a reimagined setting. So Twilight twenty thirteen. Yeah, reimagined. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so yeah, it came out in uh, it came out in two thousand eight, and imagines a future. Uh, which diverges from our own world in 2007. So the new setting is much more detailed, um, but it's also a lot more bogus. And it plays on the main fear of U.S. citizens at the time, terrorists. So the Twilight War, as, as this World War III is usually called, the Twilight War in, in some of the setting source books, the Twilight War begins when France nukes Belarus. Yep. Pete, Why? You, you heard, you heard it right. You heard it right. So yep. basically, uh, France nukes a minor Eastern European country because it's harboring terrorists. Uh, and then... That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Because they lost to them in, in friggin' Eurovision or anything? I don't know. Uh, no, it was a... Uh, so there was a terrorist strike in France, uh, which they didn't like, and they found out it came from Belarus. And France... France did try to like send in some like French special forces to to take him out in this setting, and the special special forces failed. So they decided, well, might as well just go straight to nukes, and that is the that is the origin of this setting. Yep. Um, and then Russia under the uh, the CSTO, which is the Combined Security Treaty Organization, uh, which is the kind of like counter NATO that they have with like Kazakhstan, Belarus, a couple other countries. Uh, Russia retaliates and nukes France. The EU, which is an economic union, then decides to become a a military alliance for some reason and join the war with France. Everybody starts fighting. India and Pakistan nuke each other, because that always happens in uh, the Twilight settings. China nukes the U.S. for implementing trade tariffs and then infiltrates the U.S. with two to six-man special forces teams. And just hundreds of them. They're just everywhere. Roving bands of Canadians pillage the land. Australia turns into a mad 80s movie. A giant Islamic Union state forms and attacks Israel, with most Israelis seeking refuge in Egypt. Russia invades East Ukraine and annexes Crimea. Pete, it's bonkers. It is. I mean, look, I know we just spend a bit of time saying that, you know, well... I don't. We just spend a bit, a bit of time saying, "Look, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to hold. I'm not going to begrudge the designers too much for trying to come up with X leads to Y when that might not have been realistic. Because you need to be able to get to your setting. But this just takes it to that at that point, seven years previous. You know, we're not. This isn't ancient history at this point. You know, it's yeah, it's a, it's an alternate world in a war that didn't happen. Let's just keep running the game as it were. But no, they needed to come up with, yeah, as I said, crazy town. So, so is the game still set in Europe? Is it still uh, essentially, you know, the, the, the default setting is your American soldiers deployed to Europe who are left to their own devices because, you know, because your government can't bring you home? Or is it some other shit? No, no, it's it, everyone's fighting everyone. And this is much more... Um much more broad settings so you can you can set it anywhere right you can set it in the uh the korean unification war and you can be characters there you can uh you can be um israeli refugees trying to trying to take their land back 
you can play in in uh, South America, right? Which is not usually covered in the Twilight games. It's usually, you know, not involved in the, the major war. So okay. that's interesting, right? That they were like, well, now you can set it anywhere. It's not as Euro-focused as the original game was. Um, but to do that, they... It's it's yeah it's crazy town with just like everything collapsing everywhere um you know like the Australia section is particularly weird because they're like well Australia just tries to not get into the war but still turns into Mad Max anyway why would it okay sure whatever all right yeah you just kind of have to I mean supposedly supposedly this was written by uh some military experts or something but they're probably americans who don't know tons about the uh the entire world right i mean if they're writing sections on bhutan I, i'm not sure if they really have too much personal experience there yeah it's 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 pretty yeah. wild um and i almost don't I really want to spend too much more time on it but uh but but pete i mean it's this weird fun little footnote you know yeah. you know everybody loves cyberpunk nobody talks about cyberpunk 2030x right <laughs> we're gonna yeah, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna you know we're gonna pay Twilight two thousand the same courtesy, and we'll just move on. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think the only other thing I'd say about it is that if they had given you, no, even then I'm not sure if it would work. I was thinking like maybe if you gave it like multiple Twilight scenarios, essentially, like here's the Europe scenario where everything goes to hell in Europe. Here's the South American scenario where everything goes to hell there. Here's the China versus U.S. scenario uh, where you can kind of play that. It might have been more reasonable but even then kind of hard to justify where they wanted to get to without everyone shooting each other yeah, yeah. I, I find it interesting that a lot of these games i mean particularly this one is showing its age because of, of all of the of all the scenarios it presents the idea of i don't know like a second american civil war with everybody you know with all this unrest and people shooting at each other you know on american soil never occurred to them and <laughs> where right. Are we now? Right. Yeah. 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 Other other kind of historical footnotes to kind of mention. Uh, there was an alternate setting that Game Designers Workshop came out with in the the mid '90s because you know Twilight 2000 sales were flagging and they wanted to reinvigorate it and they came up with a new idea, Merc 2000. So there's no World War Three, but governments kind of collapse and corporations start to take over and use private military contractors against each other. So it's Blackwater the RPG before Blackwater. And I guess kind of like almost like cyberpunk in some ways, where you're you're kind of like edge runners or shadow runners um, working for these corporations to to do stuff, but without the cyberpunk. Did you ever hear of a game called Millennium's End? No. Well, I have you mentioned that? You, I think you've mentioned that one. I may have at some point. Millennium's End is basically Merc Two Thousand. So yeah, it's oh, it's okay. the same sort of thing of like starting to collapse. It was at the time. It was it was described as the techno thriller RPG. Whoa. So yeah, you know, and it's it's it is Shadowrun without it is you know sort of Shadowrun without fantasy stuff. Mm. Um, well, you know, cyberpunk without the cyberpunk. You know, as I said, you know, it's it's sort of the basic idea of yeah, you are ex military, ex you know, you are a band of you know a band of professional criminals who are ex military, ex police, or you know ex you know, whatever, you know, you know, ex-criminal or what, ha what have you, or former criminal who are now running around doing, you know, wet work for various different corporations. Um, yeah, it went for a while, did its thing. Um, the, the, the Merc 2000 sounds sort of very, very similar. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Yep. And apparently, Merc 2000 was the uh, precursor setting to Game Designer Workshop's Dark Conspiracy RPG, which is kind of their horror near future game. I think that one's also got, that's like a horror near future that also has, I think it's got, uh, yeah, we, we probably do need to sit down and, and give Dark Conspiracy, because Dark Conspiracy is also coming back. Everything's coming back. Yeah. Um, I think Dark Conspiracy, I think, I think we need to hold off to give, to give that one its own episode. Because um, it's very much in our wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but to the best of my knowledge, yeah, that's that sort of near future guys hunting, I believe, supernatural creatures. I don't know, but I actually just bought the book, so it should be uh, arriving oh, yeah. in POD form pretty soon. Getting a sequel. All right, there we yep. go. We'll we'll come back and we'll we'll review Dark Conspiracy Dunskies. No problems. You'll get we'll get feedback for that one. Um, we also have, which I think is really interesting. You have Traveler twenty three AD which was a setting now weirdly enough when they first published it it was called traveler 23 ad and it had nothing to do with traveler correct yep yeah, yeah. so because because um game designers workshops you know because um uh, uh, one of their other big rpgs was of course traveler you know sort of the first big um the first big uh sci-fi game and yeah so traveler 23 actually had nothing to do with traveler um and it um, um the later editions of it were just called 2300 ad so so the deal there is so it's it's set three about 300 obviously 300 years after twilight 2000 and the deal there is that the countries that were least devastated by the twilight war you know are able to you know sort of rebuild quickly get space programs going and they end up the dominant space powers so it actually so, so in this time frame the dominant space power is actually france mm-hmm. um it's it's not bad. It's very. It's and um, at the time they were claiming that it's it's hard science or as most close to hard science space. Um, uh, you know, like a, a space RPG that you can get. At the time, they were claiming that they that, that that they were the only RPG using the most realistic star maps possible. Hmm, interesting. Um, it's it's not bad. It's it's very alien. If 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 that makes sense, it's it's that sort of you know corporations out there, and you're playing kind of working stiffs running around. Um, it's even got its own sort of equivalent of a bug race, which they call Kaffirs, which yeah, yeah is I know that's 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 that is a racial slur in South Africa, oh, but yeah, because oh, that's, that's because that's, uh, that's, yeah, no, that's a problem. No, no, it is, but well, hang on a second, yeah, it is, but that's because that's because the word literally means bug. Okay, well, hmm. It, it was it was it was one of those things that sort of popped up. You're like, really? You're like, so like like what like because my my only real exposure to sort of racist South Africans was yeah that time yeah uh, lethal weapon two, um, and you see them using that term a lot. But yeah, but but in this one they were saying oh no, there's, we're we're fighting the kafirs, and you're like, that's you're doing what? And it's like, oh yeah, that's because the word literally means bug. It, it is literal translation. Interesting. Uh, I mean, a little questionable in this day and age, but uh, it might have made sense to them in the uh, the 1980s. Uh, yeah. Uh, Look, it's 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 one of things that I'm 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 sure it did, and the designers at the time may not even have been aware that it's an Afrikaans swear word. Mm. I think it's based on the fact that okay, what's the root language for Afrikaans? I think is it Dutch? Yes. Yep. people scratch? Yeah, yeah, there you go. I think I think it was I think it was you know because they were encountered first by Dutch space set um space settlers, they thought hey that's a cool name for our alien race. You know they're the Kappas, and later on they discovered it's a Mm. It's a racial slur. Yeah, it's used by white Africaners. I was like, oh, whoops. Yeah, that's a bummer. That's a bummer. Uh, yeah. Twenty three hundred AD is another deeply fascinating game. Um, apparently, they developed it by actually playing a, a war game or or economic simulator or something in their office. 
Um, they, they created their own game just for internal use, and they played it to see how the countries after uh, the year 2000 would kind of grow into uh, being spacefaring races in, uh, in 2300 AD. Um, and that's how they kind of came up with like, all right, so this is, uh, France is the most powerful, right? Because they had the largest economic base to start off with and also did some wacky colonization in, uh, on planet Earth and also in space. Um, but like, um, you know, there's some other, some other interesting ones like Brazil came out very strongly uh, for, for reasons of, not, of having a strong industrial base. Uh, the U.S. is in this like weird alliance, I believe, uh, with, with Texas, I think, because I think te it kind of broke apart a little bit. Um, and that's how they do their space colonies, uh, for example. It would be a cool, another cool game to kind of talk about in the future if, if people are interested. Um, we'll have to see what the numbers are in this episode, but also, you know, just uh, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, swing by the Discord or shoot us a message because we'd be uh, really happy to know if uh, people want to listen to more of this or if you want us to stick to more trad horror. So moving on there, let's, let's talk about the Twilight 2000 standout rules, mechanics, and concepts. Because what I find really interesting about this, you know, we went through the setting and all of that, but as the game developed, it's not just some kind of Red Dawn survivalist fantasy. You can see how the writers get more and more fearful of this outcome as they write the different source books and adventures. And Pete, I was actually looking at the, uh, the author credits for some of the early source books, uh, and you'll be interested to know that William H. Keith Jr., of uh, Battletech fame, wrote some of the early adventures. Nice, yeah. A great uh, Saga of the Great Death Legion himself. Yep, yep, you got it. I, I did uh, say that I'd, I'd actually recently reread a couple of those, and mm -hmm. boy, have they not aged well. Boy, have they not aged well, but anyway. <laughs> no, I mean, they're from the 80s. They were, uh, they were game tie in fiction. You know, they're probably going to be a little rough around the edges. I, I remember loving them when I was a kid, but yeah, oh, it's yeah. one of those things where, you know, 15-year-old Pete was like, this is the best thing ever. And then, you know, almost 40-year-old Pete kind of goes, wow, really? A bunch of grown men taking a 20-year-old commander seriously? And, it, and it's never an issue? I can't quite swallow that. But anyway, also, I'm just, I'm just way too used to reading military science fiction written by like people who used to be in the military. So you get, they get this sort of cadence of how they all talk really, really well. And then Keith, who's a Look, Keith's a fun, good writer, but I don't think he's former military, and it kind of shows. Mm. Yep, yep. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, so Twilight 2000 version 1 and 2 have a very interesting design. So the game itself is a total sandbox uh, hex crawl in some adventures. Uh, other adventures, you're just given a map, right? A real, like, military map, essentially. And you have to see, like, okay, so they got the ruins over here. We know a nuke landed in this spot. Uh, maybe we'll go to this village. Uh-oh. The Ruskies are there. And you kind of play the game that way. Roll initiative, the Ruskies. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's got hundreds of locations that players can explore. And yeah, the game begins with one heck of a bang, you know. The players are deep behind enemy lines. They don't know who to trust. There are these, like, rogue Soviet warlords that actually might want to hire them, right? You know, as, as, as hired muscle. And they get food that way. They can get ammunition. And maybe there's some CIA agents out there who uh, actually just want to betray them, right? So you don't really know, you know, who do you serve and who do you trust? It's that kind of... Uh, situation and yeah as i mentioned so they released the adventure modules and these modules are incredibly linear one of them is literally you hop on a boat and you travel down river right <laughs> there's um there's no real maneuvering you're just going in a straight line essentially 
and the fun thing about that adventure, Pete, is uh, I figured out that the most effective way to get through that adventure and not have to fight people is to just get off the boat and travel by land. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh, oh hang on. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's the version of the rule from, um, from what is the apocalypse now, which is, yeah, they say, don't get off the boat. This one, not just, just get off the boat. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's probably safer. You're not going to get ambushed as much. Um, yeah. Yeah. The uh, random encounter tables seem to be less harsh on land. So, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of fun. But you know, there's other adventures which have really interesting concepts. So, like the characters in one, uh, they hear about some blueprints that, for a a device, basically like a new motherboard that uh, is EMP immune. So if they find this and they can manufacture it or get someone to manufacture it, computers can come back online. Um, and there's tons of different organizations that want this. So. Uh, you know, they, they kind of go out there, they get the MacGuffin, and then they're able to kind of use it and negotiate, which is always a, uh, a fun kind of situation. And there's other things, you know, they, uh, you know, finding like an old uh, Catholic uh, Polish artifact, which uh, different people want to use for their own, uh, like, legitimacy and that sort of thing, uh, fighting against Russian warlords in their own fiefdom in the ruins, that kind of stuff. And then all these adventures culminate, these linear adventures culminate in adventure when the characters catch wind that the last boat is going back to the U.S. And basically they have to rush over there to get on the boat so they can get out of there, leave Europe behind, and finally get back to American soil. And maybe some of the other characters, you know, maybe British will come with them, maybe some Eastern Europeans that were fighting with them, uh, they'll, they'll come back as refugees. They finally make it home and they arrive back to a broken United States. So, which is which is a fun little period victory. Also, if, if you if for, for what I think is a really fun spin, did you ever hear of it's it's a combination sort of adventure and a source book? Have you heard of Red Star Lone Star? I've seen it, but I don't know much about it. Pete, what's uh what's good about it? A Russian invasion of Texas. Wait, what? <laughs> it's the well, yeah, because it's 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 this whole idea of it's this whole idea of. Oh. Everything's 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 screwed up. So yeah, so, so 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 one of the big I would need to look up exactly what its name is off the top of my head. Help me out, Mike. But yeah, one of the big source books is the guide to you know this now absolutely screwed up United States. Yeah. You know the you know the I think Washington's been nuked. You know you know the 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 big you know um a handful of the big population centers got nuked, and if they didn't, you know the the um suborbital EMP bombs have gone off. So you know mm -hmm. so. The place has been shattered. And yeah, you know, within this situation, you know, you have warlords and things popping up. And within this situation, yeah, you know, a, a, a small contingent of Soviets, you know, are able to hold and occupy along with certain segments, you know, you know, where where um, oh, the Mexican army has actually crossed over and, and, right. and has, you know, ta taken over a, a bunch of border cities as well. And yeah, there's this large contingent, well, there's this contingent of, Soviets who have, who have taken and hold in an area of Texas. Yeah, that actually that makes more sense than I originally thought, Pete, because there are a lot of troops in Cuba, so they would have just taken a boat over. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 it's, it's like that. so yeah, and it's again it's it's one of those things that the, the, the player characters, you know, either either having, you know, never gotten shipped over to to uh, fight the Twilight War to initially. Or, you know, or again they 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 finally come back to a breaking United States and discover there's Russians in Texas. That will not stand. You know, you can you can you can tap into your inner. You see, you see that way you can have you can have a bit of a go at doing the whole um, Red Dawn. Yeah, you yeah. Know, without it being kind of 
completely kind of crazy. Uh, I, I kind of love that movie. But anyway, it's, it's, uh, it is, it's a relic it is. of its time. I mean, if you're, listen, if, you, if you're watching it and you're just like, huh, this is interesting, rather than being like, yeah, let's fight people, jingoism, that sort of thing. Like, yeah, it's fine. You can enjoy it, you know, as long as you realize that, you know, going to war with the Soviet Union is not good. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 not a documentary, but yeah, people that that film that film drove people insane. There was there was apparently there was kids apparently digging bunkers in Central Park in New York, you know, convinced that this was gonna happen. Holy smokes. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a crazy film. It's just yeah, the 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 hardest conceit there is that a bunch of school kids, you know, take to the mountains, learn, you know, military tactics, and then kind of take on Russian Spetsnaz forces and win. <laughs> but oh well Yeah. It's it's still um, as again as a quick aside it's it's maybe sort of this is one which is very very difficult to come by. Have you ever heard of America? Nope, never heard of it. Never got a never got a um, a re-release. It was only ever broadcast once or twice. It's available on YouTube in bits and pieces. Um, it is it's one of those things that look not that we're not we we do not advocate piracy at all on on darker days radio but the only way to ever see it is through is essentially through a bootleg um so it it was as a response to um i think it was funded by an eccentric millionaire as a response to things like um uh, the day after it mm -hmm. is an eight-part mini-series it only ever broadcast during the during the 80s about what america would be like so it's america with a k um, so it's you know a you know so it's America's got with a K and it's about what America would be like if it was remotely con if it, if it had been taken over by the Soviets. Uh, like mm. Chris Christopherson's in it, Sam Neill's in it. It goes for eight hours. It has eight. It has a complete eight-hour score by Basil Polidorus. And yeah, it's this sort of fun side that if if you can and apparently it's not fantastic and it's it's more kind of interesting because it's it's never been made available on on any format. It's not on any streaming service. It was never given a VHS release, never given a DVD, Blu-ray, nothing. It's disappeared. And, yeah, the only way you can find it, yeah, so yeah, if, if you've been sort of playing along, you know, you know, listening to some of the stuff that we've been talking about, yeah, give, I, I know I know a good chunk of it is available on YouTube. So, yeah, uh, look that one up. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something to check out. It, has, it says it on Wikipedia has 870 minutes of runtime. So this was quite the miniseries. Wow. Awesome. So, Pete, here's another thing about Twilight 2000, which I really wanted to put up front, but it just didn't make sense for the, the, the podcast structure. This is a military RPG that really showcases women, which I found deeply interesting. This was, you know, published in 1980s by GDW, which is, you know, the grognardy wargamer RPG company, right? But this mm. book has no weird gender politics. There's no, like, oh. I hate this in our old RPGs, like the stat penalties for women. There's none of that, you know? Ladies can have <laughs> the exact same combat roles as men. There's, there's no issues, no problem. Just play a woman if you want, which, you know, I was kind of surprised by going back. Also kind of delighted by, you know, there's women, there's two women on the cover. Uh, a lot of women pop up in the flavor text in the books. Um, I thought that was a really good thing. So, so, because so, I, I, in, in my rereads, I, I don't remember, I don't remember that specific piece. But so, do they talk about you know when you say you can play a woman, but they say that yeah, you're just you're just uh, like if you go with the standard setting of it being yeah, you're a you're a member of 
let's say yeah, um, you're a US Marine or something. So so it, it doesn't pop in any kind of conceit, like, you know, stating, yeah, you can be a female infantry trooper or something, and it's it's no big deal. You just, yep, you're there. Yep. Yeah, you. Uh, there are no penalties to like what military career you roll up. Um, you you can be an intelligence officer, you can be line infantry, you could be you know air force pilot. Um, you can do anything as a woman, which uh, was was when they were writing this, that was not the case in the U.S. military at the time. Um, I don't think there were any women pilots at that time. Uh, no, no frontline infantry women. Uh, that's that's all very recent in the U.S. Army. Um, and also something Pete, I was really shocked by, you know, because I grew up with like, like Battletech, you know, reading about Natasha Kerensky, you know, being the most badass pilot in the entire inner sphere. I was reading about, uh, I was watching Babylon 5, had like Ivanova, she was a pilot and everything. And then this whole debate came up that like, you know, there were people saying like women, women can't be in frontline roles. And I was just like, what? They, they can't? Like all this military sci-fi was telling me they could. And I didn't even realize it was an issue until, you know, there were chuds complaining about it. We, we still haven't had a female seal. Which you remember that there? That was that movie G.I. Jane, which I think is now maybe twenty-five years old. Yeah, it's a pretty old one. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't know about super special forces and that kind of stuff. That's a. Uh, that's a whole another topic of debate here in the U.S. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm sure they could. I'm relatively certain in places like Israel they already do. But anyway, oh, yeah. moving along about RPGs. Sure. Sure. Um. Here's another interesting thing about uh, Twilight 2000 version one. Um, so it has random stat generation, right? Which can be cool, but also a real problem, right? Because you might just roll a character who's terrible. Um, and if you, the interesting thing that they did was that if you roll poorly with the random stats, uh, the system gives you, uh, gives your characters more experience, right? It assumes that your character has probably been, you know, in the in the combat zone for longer. Um, and having survived longer, your character has a higher coolness, which is actually the best stat in the game. So the only way to start off with the best stat in the game as being high, you have to roll poorly on the rest of your character, which is interesting, right? Um, coolness is the, uh, the stat that kind of determines your initiative, right? And if you have a higher coolness, that means you get to act in more combat rounds sooner, which means that basically you get to sh start shooting faster. Um, and in this game, it's incredibly deadly. So uh, you definitely want to have the initiative if you can, or play in ambushes. That's that's the best way to uh, to strike in this game. Other interesting things: uh, characters all start the game radioactive. There's no escaping it. You have one d six rads, and it can only go downhill from there. And so, so what is what is the overall penalty like? Like if if you cop too many rads, yeah, you die, yep. obviously, or it's or it's you have and 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 did they put in sort of the whole sort of thing of you know like yeah um take a radiation hit and within sort of 18 months you may develop like a really virulent form of cancer or or no, not, nothing quite like that uh man i have to go back and reread the rules i mean yeah. obviously end end line is death but i think you you get sick as you go along um and other things like that which i think could be really interesting if if the referee keeps track of the rads and hides it from the players right so they don't know they're getting irradiated most of the time. Uh, uh, and they will just start to develop symptoms as they go. And that'll kind of be the key, like, oh, we're in we're in trouble. We need to uh, be careful about this kind of stuff. The symptoms is a good part. I, I, I foresee it as, you know, well, again, like in, in the hand, in, look, anything in the hands of a bad GM is not going to work. But yeah, 
if you you would need to kind of keep them updated and give them symptoms like yeah you start to feel sick you can't keep down any food and it's like oh um i wonder what's wrong with me and you're like um you know medical knowledge and you're like oh oh, this seems like radiation poisoning (laughs) but yeah but yeah i i I like the idea of of keeping track of the rads and maybe not telling the players just kind of giving it to them in kind of in-world symptoms i've actually i've actually been experimenting doing something similar in vampire where I was keeping track of damage, and I was just kind of telling them, "Yeah, you know, you've you felt like you got a broken arm, or or you, you feel, or yeah, you feel, you know, he he punches you in the chest, and you feel one of your ribs crack, rather than giving it to them." And yeah, you know, take too superficial, because I, I I guess maybe the idea is is that their reactions will be sort of you know more, I guess more realistic. Rather than going, ah, it's just too superficial. What do I care? Mm. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. I think the only drawback with that sure. kind of uh, hidden information in this setting is that, you know, there's Geiger counters, there's dosimeters, so that that might kind of clue them into not only is the area around us irradiated, but oh, Jim over there or Jane, she's got a load of rads right now, you know, just going over her with a uh, a Geiger counter. Break out, break out the iodine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Twilight 2000 version 1 and 2 also have this really interesting gameplay cycle that uh, I think budding and experienced designers should really take a look at. Um, the food and fuel is very, very critical to the characters, critically important. And uh, the book provides rules for foraging, gathering plant matter, and also farming crops in what is essentially a light nuclear winter. And these crops can then be used to uh, distill alcohol uh, which then fuels the uh, player's vehicles. Um, and because the alcohol distilling rules are so important, um, player characters probably actually want to make friends with, say, like a local farming community or a local village, because uh, this can help uh, keep their uh, vehicles running while also allowing the uh, the players themselves to kind of avoid these very tedious bookkeeping uh, tasks and uh, have more fun character downtime. Yeah, now this one, now this one again, you know, this is this is the perspective of two guys who've read the game and haven't actually played it. Like this one for me doesn't sound that spectacular, but you know, so I suppose like your own mileage for fun needs to come up. Like I don't think right. this is for me, but I've been talking about Twilight Two Thousand with you know a bunch of sort of you know uh, with a bunch of lo- local gamers. Like I was I was mentioning I was mentioning a lot of this on the uh, Paxos um, Discord. You know, during during lockdown when we didn't have anything anything to do but talk about you know role playing games we've played and role playing games that that we um that we hope to play. This is on sort of the specific Paxos tabletop, you know. So this is all people who I've known from you know sort of running a few uh, vampire sessions at Pax. And uh, you know, so at the time I think this was when they were running the Kickstarter, and I had four different sets of some of the old guard. You know, so, so some of the guys who were kind of who've been doing it since the eighties. Four different guys popped up and said, "Oh my god, we had so much fun with Twilight 2000. Mm-hmm. You know, we had we had a truck, we had an ethanol distiller, and and we went so many. You know, we went we went so many hexes. And oh, that was you go. Yeah, that was about two years when we played this one campaign, and it was just awesome. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, okay, again, you know, you're not much with it. What what does kind of worry me a little bit, and I guess again, this is this is a whole thing with you know everyone's mileage for it." is where the game and again this is i suppose can be determined by individual players and individual gms where is the line between the realism and and this being a genuinely fun experience mm. you know mm. and where you have the idea of look we, we need you know there's no petrol in the cars so everything is going to be about keeping the vehicle mobile otherwise we'll be walking and yeah that's that's not going to work very well um 
because yeah, look, I mean, ultimately you kind of boiled this down to sort of the realism factor. And again, you, you mentioned sort of keeping track of food. Realistically speaking, in this situation, what is going to kill the vast majority of people? You know, when society's broken down, you don't have access to, you know, all the things that society gives you. And the big one there being, you know, sort of sort of like potable water. Um, does the game, I don't think it does, but does the game have kind of the thing of, you know, has the water gone stagnant checks? Because realistically speaking, if you don't have access to clean water, most of you are going to die really quickly and you're going to die horrible, horrible deaths. So, but yeah, a, a role-playing game, which every single time your character goes to drink water, you know, you roll to see whether or not it's stagnant and whether or not you're going to get dysentery and then die. That that doesn't seem like too much fun to me. Yeah, no, but again, that's a great point. That's a great point, Pete. But yeah, no, continue. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, it's, it, I, I suppose in, in, in a way it might be a lot of fun or it gives you an interesting structure. It almost reminds me of, of um, you. I think you're a little bit too young to have played it, but do you remember the old game Oregon Trail? I never played it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, I never played it, heard of it, but yeah, the, the, that was this sort of semi-realist, or, you know, at the time trying to be real, you know, the idea of, yeah, you know, being settlers going out in, in the Old West. And yeah, it's the whole idea of you move on, you try to do this with food, it doesn't work, somebody dies, and, uh, you know, you just have to keep on moving. Um... So yes, but I suppose yeah, you know. So again, it, a lot that's a line for everybody. But yeah, I, I do kind of worry about how much of it is the sort of how much of the game is the structure of keeping things moving, and um, you know, paying paying attention to realism, and how much of that is actually fun. It does sound like a lot of bookkeeping. I mean, like for, for my money, and obviously, you know, we're we're kind of a we're a, we're a, you know, if if there's anything overall, because you know, initially when the podcast started, we were just kind of all white wolf all the time, and we're now we're branching out to kind of general horror. We've branched out to general horror gaming, but I'd be I'd be really interested in kind of exploring, you know, the horror, the mindset, the horror of going through, you know, this a shattered Europe. Mm. You know, and, and kind of doing that, you know, with doing that, you know, with your players. And so, you know, I suppose the minutiae of, geez, well, you know, how, how do we keep alive? How do we keep food in our bellies? And, and how do we keep the truck running? That's something to do during, you know, but it's almost like, well, how do we, how do we stay human? How do we, you know, when we're surrounded by so much death and destruction, that would be sort of the angle that I would want to take it with. And I'm not just so sure. I mean, it, it's still a 1980s game. I'm not so sure how much the game really focused on kind of the psychology and the psychological impact of what's going on. Yeah, you know, it it really didn't, Pete. Um, yeah, there's there's a couple things to tackle right there. Uh, so I'll tackle the the psychology first, right? There are a lot of NPCs, um, also a lot of women NPCs, which is interesting, and. I don't think it discusses their psychology that much. Um, I think in a more modern game, rather than the um, sort of like write-up for every single village that they have in this game, you know, saying like, well, this is a village of of 50 people and they have this much food and uh, some guy here has some bullets he might trade, that sort of thing. It almost might be better to write up a whole bunch of vignettes, basically. Here's, here's yeah. 50 vignettes that your characters might encounter in their travels in Poland, right? And those can really explore the psychological effects. You can have, you can highlight maybe like two NPCs at each location that, that have something going on. Um, and I think that would be a great way of doing it. That would also support the sandbox nature of that kind of core Poland adventure that the game started with. Mm. So that's how I'd probably do it these days. We'll, we'll see how the new Twilight uh, 2000 handles things. I, I haven't heard anything about the Free League version 
tackling psychology, but uh, that could be the case. That's my knowledge, because yeah, so, so the PDF has has gone out to backers. We talked to them sort of. That. I've 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 um. Okay, I'll 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 cop to it. Um, yeah. So I've I've had a look at the PDF. Um, I think it's it's actually pretty good in that in that um. So it's it's they've they've ditched the original system, and they're using something which is a spin on the Mutant City Zero system. Because all right, so cool. the new edition has been put out by Free League. It is absolutely gorgeous. It has got you know all the sort of that lovely lovely um um Free League artwork in it, and it's kind of using their in-house system, which is the Mutant City Zero system. Which they've used for um, Alien, and which I'm very, very familiar with. As anyone who sat there listening to me wax lyrical will know. But uh, the Alien system is really good because the Alien system has that stress mechanic, and I think and they've they've ported that over for the new edition. So that's that really that's something I really, really find interesting because yeah, because because you know how that one have, have you heard how that one works? It's actually quite similar to Hunger Dice in that it, it kind of you know you can you keep picking up stress, you pick up an extra stress mm-hmm. and extra stress here. It kind of builds up, um, you know, until the point where you sort of get to a breaking point where you need to roll on a table to see how you just kind of lose it, you know, yeah. all the way up, you know, and sometimes you can just kind of stop and scream at someone, or you can even just kind of, you know, go, you know, sort of start firing your weapon or whatnot. So, I, I mean, obviously, and that was sort of the, the version that popped up in Alien. I think this one's maybe a little bit more granular and doesn't quite sort of, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, it's not out to emulate everything you see, obviously, because that was more of an emulation of what you see in Alien. But yeah, I think this one, this one's maybe more suited towards, you know, not so much suited to, but, you know, has more tools in your toolbox for dealing with the sort of, with the psychology of um, what your players are getting up to. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to probably, I know David really wants to cover uh, the new edition of uh, Twilight 2000. So once that's actually out and we've got like physical copies, that could be something we do in the future if, uh, if listeners are interested. Um, So definitely let us know. And Pete, there was one other thing you kind of mentioned, just about like the funness. And I actually want to go back. So I don't think the alcohol distillation rules are fun. I just think they're interesting that they're even included, right? So how many military RPGs out there have all these rules for how you can farm, right? It's, 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 it's pretty rare. And I think it does highlight some of the desperation of the setting, which I think is interesting. But I think that, you know, budding and experienced designers should take a look at it, maybe just to figure out if they can improve it if they can make things a bit more um, streamlined, because while I think it's important to track, you know, having to track every individual liter of uh, of ethanol seems a little too granular, especially in this day and age. So I think that's really what I kind of wanted to highlight about that. You know, with, with regard to realism as well, you know, uh, Brendan over at Full Metal RPG has an interesting saying, which comes from one of his political classes, that, uh, you know, institutions create incentives and this institution of tracking food and tracking fuel does create incentives for the players you know i talked about the nice thing about them the characters maybe making friends with a farming community but you can go a lot darker than that you know you can have serfdom you can have enslavement you can have these characters just becoming you know petty warlords essentially um and just kind of using people for their labor for example so the rules as written do lead to uh some potentially realistic gameplay and i think that's also why they're interesting um not exactly yeah, positive but yeah. interesting yeah you know it, it's it's and i mean and yeah so boiling things down to you know it, it gets to the point where 
if you hand wave the food rules, then it becomes, then the players aren't going to focus on food. They're going to be like, well, we're military people. Let's go do military stuff, you yep. know? And if it's like, and I, I kind of like the idea of, no, no, the war's over. Nobody won, <laughs> you know? It's, it's, it's not about winning a war. It's about getting home or it's about, you know, getting, it's about, yeah, or it's, it's not about winning a war. It's about survival. So if you don't, inc- I mean, obviously, obviously you've, you've said it, you know, and yeah, but they're, they're a bit too granular, a bit too crunchy, but, you know, but there still needs to be rules for that there. You know, the idea of, well, we haven't eaten in three days. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> you know, and yeah, you know, you're going to hat in your hand, you know, you know, go in and see, you know, go and beg with the farmer who's probably not really, you're not necessarily going to be all that inclined to give an American you know, food which which then his family aren't going to be able to have themselves, just so they can keep their their you know their truck moving. Yeah, you know, and what could you possibly have to offer him in that instance? Or maybe he wants one of your rifles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you are you, yeah, you know that whole sort of thing. Are you going to give up one of your rifles? Yeah, and this is a game where you have to track individual bullets. So, um... oh, wow, I love all that. <laughs> you know, you losing know? losing those six rounds might be. Uh might be a problem yeah. down the line yeah and I've, I've always kind of said that that you know for me the best role-playing games are always about choices and consequences and so i feel like you know if, if you keep that in mind i feel like yeah you, you know regardless of just how crazy some of the rules get i that's i, I think you'd be onto a winner with that with Twilight 2000 yep yep absolutely so i know we've been running really long but i want to cover two other things really quick uh so twilight 2013 we made fun of a whole lot but uh there is at least one really good concept um that this game introduced so characters who do not roll well or well enough to be soldiers will instead be classed as civilians and quote displaced persons end quote so this opens up uh to having the game be less combat focused um and stories which are more about you know that apocalyptic survival rather than just military operations which i think is interesting and uh, it also can kind of highlight a situation where well, okay, so your your base got attacked, and some of the characters are soldiers that escaped, but there's also just some some civilians, like um, you know, an engineer, maybe a nurse, for example, that kind of just had to escape with them. And you're you're trekking across the countryside with this more mixed party rather than a uh, a military outfit. Um, but in addition to that, there's also a lot of rules for military operations. Um, and one interesting one is that characters get bonuses for following the orders of their commanding officer, which you know, for the military side of things, kind of encourages that sort of, you know, teamwork gameplay, which actually the previous versions of Twilight didn't have. That's good. I mean, you, you can sort of see the evolution of it. I see, like, a lot of that. Yeah, a lot of that sort of stuff maybe popped up a little bit in, geez, almost in, almost in D&D 4th Ed than D&D 5th, where you had sort of like, you know, again, you know, it's, it's sort of like if you do X, Y, and Z, you get a buff, you know? It was like... um. I guess it was almost the, the attempt to re- rehabilitate the bard, you know, when you had sort of certain things coming in, which were just, you know, if, if you do this, you'll, you'll help your other players out. So, yeah, I can, I can see that as being sort of an, an, um, an evolution of that. But no, I, I, I like that rule. That's cool. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, you're, you're also probably thinking of the Warlord from D&D 4th Edition, which is the character class that gives orders to characters and they get bonuses and effects for that. That's the... You are, you are probably correct. I, mean, I didn't play a true. Yeah, the bard, the bard had it as well. Um, so it was definitely a thing with a couple classes. And the only problem with the Warlord yeah. in D&D 4E is that it turns D&D from like, you know, a group game down to a, a single player game, right? Because if you don't 
follow the orders of the warlord character you're playing suboptimally and if the uh if the player who is less tactically inclined picks the warlords there's going to be a lot of tension at the table when you're just like people arguing and saying like hey don't tell me to do that we need to destroy this goblin not attack the uh the illithid or whatever so it can cause some problems but for a military game well you could that tension could be realistic, right? You know, sometimes the lieutenant isn't the smartest one in the squad, even though he's given the orders. Yeah. So, well. it's interesting. Uh, the other thing that we want to uh, mention is, of course, the Twilight Nightmare Horror Supplement. So, it was... <laughs> yeah, Pete, it was the early 90s, and uh, horror was hot, so GDW decided to cash in. Uh, and, honestly, I bought the book. It's not very good. Your soldiers can fight <laughs> dinosaurs, um, there's a predator knockoff. Uh, there's also UFOs. And uh, did you think that dungeon crawls were missing from your Twilight 2000 games? Well, don't worry, because your squad can go into a giant ant hive and shoot giant ants for three to four sessions. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what what kind of loot is down there? I mean, I mean, are these are these ethanol drinking ants? So if you get down there, you're like, oh, the liters and liters <laughs> of ant juice. Oh, well. maybe. I mean, and, uh, it's a lot of organic matter. And, uh, you can make some. You can make some ant vodka or something. Nice, wonderful. I for one welcome our insect overlords. Yeah, the only one that actually kind of impressed me was that there's a Freddy Krueger inspired dream adventure, which uh, yeah, I thought was kind of cool, Pete. So yeah, it, it kind of you could just play it for like a Halloween session, and the players are left wondering: did that dream, you know, really happen, or was it just in our collective heads? So it's like so. So they have a horrendous nightmare, and then they wake up to discover they're still in Twilight Two Thousand, you know, war ravaged Poland. Yeah, so they're still in a horrible nightmare. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe Jim died in the same way that uh, the uh, the spooky ghost soldier killed him in the dream. Yeah, woo. Or it, or it turns out that yeah, they've all been suffering the effects of an experimental, like you know, an, an experimental nightmare drug or something. So they, it, it bleeds over and becomes um, Jacob's Ladder. If you've ever seen that movie. Mm, could be, could be. Awesome. So, Pete, uh, is there anything else we want to discuss on Twilight Two Thousand, or is that kind of it? Yeah, I think we've I think we've done quite well. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. As we said, the um, uh, so the PDFs have gone out to backers, I believe, and pre-orders to general public is out. Um, everything that I've seen of it so far looks like that it's what I would call the goods. It looks absolute. Look, it it, it honors the spirit the spirit of the original, and I'll say with a game system that I think is already fantastic because I've, I've seen it work in alien um so yeah I, I, i'm really interested to to i'll definitely be picking up a physical copy um well not physical, I'll, I'll definitely be getting uh into it in the future and yeah if people are genuinely interested we may come back to talk about it some more with dave because i know he's a big fan yeah definitely definitely that'd be really good and uh if you are interested you should let us know and kind of in closing here the best way to do that is to go to our link tree link tree slash darker days radio has links to our discord our youtube facebook everything and uh, that's a great way to find uh how, how to contact us on social media and um i think that pretty much covers it pete thank you so much for coming on the show i know it's been a while but uh, we gotta get you on more often that's what i always say it's it's just the unfortunate thing of me being in a completely different time zone. So I'm I'm twelve that so I'm twelve hours ahead of you. So you're trying to get everybody together. So the the, the big reason why I, I don't show up all that often I'm I've I've been relegated to sort of guest star status is purely the fact that 
yeah, trying to get uh, Americans, English, and Australians all on at the same time is very, yeah. very there's tough. only There's only one brief period where it works, and it has to be on a weekend, right? Because, you know, everyone else is... The English people are working. Right now, I'm, I need to go to work. Uh, so that's why uh, that's why we're trying to wrap up. And I know, uh, Pete, it's uh, it's late evening for you, so... Just, gonna, uh, just, just about to go 11, yeah. Yeah, so thanks for staying up late and, uh, you know, coming on the show. We'll, we'll definitely get you back on, but... Uh, it's also cool being yeah. the uh, the awesome guest star that that shows up and everyone gets excited when you're here. So it's always good. I'm sure, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Absolutely. And I think that wraps up everything for the show. And uh, hey, to all the listeners out there, take it easy. Good night. Stay safe and don't cause a nuclear war. This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com. We will see you all. <laughs> all right. We've been saying it. <laughs> We've been saying Twilight 2000 all the time, and I had to make that joke. Nice. Yeah. Um. If anyone who's a Conan fan should should understand that one. And yeah, he's 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 wrapping up late night now. So thank you, Conan. <laughs>